this reading of the Business Record, Central Iowa's Business Weekly. I'm your reader, Bob Powers. All material heard on IRIS is intended for the use of listeners with print disabilities. And from the September 20th, 2019 edition of the Business Record, here's our first story. Of course, it's taken from the Insider Notebook, Bits and Bites of the Finer Side of Iowa Business. This week, it's uh, accumulated by Perry Beeman. And I say accumulated because it's words of wisdom from DMAC Small Business Award winners. Mr. Beeman wrote, Representatives of six companies took the stage at the FFA Enrichment Center in Ankeny, September 10th, to accept various small business awards from Des Moines Area Community College. Perrin, the business record, was one of the sponsors in Perrin. Their comments were illuminating and at times funny. Here's a sampling. Megan McKay, founder, Peace Tree Brewing, Knoxville and Des Moines, most innovative company winner. A few years ago, I had some pretty big decisions to make about whether to stay in my family's insurance business or to go out and get a real job or to continue with the brewery. So I chose the brewery, brackets, crowd laughter in brackets. And it wasn't necessarily the easy route. It wasn't the get-rich-quick scheme, but it was a great chance to kind of continue what we had started. It was a way to drive economic growth. It was a way to pursue a creative process in a small town, brackets, Knoxville, and brackets. It was a great way to create jobs, create tourism, and really just enhance the quality of life, brackets. She later opened a place in Des Moines' East Village, too, and brackets. It's a little cliche to say that running a small business is hard. To my fellow business owners and to the future entrepreneurs that are out in the crowd, I see you. I feel you. It's tough. The days are long. It can be very lonely. You know you have your best friends at work and you have your home life, and there's not much for that, and there's not much time for much beyond that. End quote. But McKay said, small businesses, the biggest employers in the American economy, hold a special place in the nation. Quote, the big corporations do have their value, but I think it's really important to remember that they don't add to the very fabric of our communities like a small business does. End quote. Leslie Rish Triplet, owner, Dumpling Darling, Des Moines and Iowa City, Young Entrepreneur of the Year, Tie. Quote, I started as a stand at the farmer's market. I often tell this story. It was a few months in, and I had just quit my job. I was like, okay, I'm doing this. I was 26 years old and working really, really hard, and I was fed up with what I was doing at the farmer's market. And this man comes to my booth, and he goes, oh, this is really cute. Do you just do this to get out of the house? And I kind of had a little flashback to the 24 hours leading up to the farmer's market. 
I stayed up all night making thousands of dumplings myself. I couldn't get the kimchi and the soy sauce stench out of my hair. I had gotten to the farmer's market at 5 a.m. that morning after driving the crappiest car you've ever seen with steamers full of dumplings on my lap. It took everything I had in me not to leap across the table and spit my homemade hot sauce in this man's eye, but he wasn't worth how good the hot sauce was. I wish that was the last time someone doubted my ability to do something because I'm young or because I'm a woman. It was not the last time, but it's moments like that that lead me to say to myself, I'll show him, and I think I have. In the restaurant industry, it's an old boys club. We're going to change that because, guys, we're getting out of the house, end quote. Ryan Downs, owner, Next Level Extreme Fitness, Urbandale, Young Entrepreneur of the Year, the tie, I guess. Quote, we all know the struggles, the battles, and the adversity it takes to get through being a successful small business. At the same time, we can all appreciate the gratification that comes from being a small business owner. About 10 years ago, when I started the business, I was 20 years old, and I remember I got a $40,000 loan out of the bank somehow, and the first thing I did was I bought a truck because I thought I needed a truck, brackets, laughter, and brackets. About a year into my business, a family member told me, your business is going to fail, and I was like, why? His reasoning was because of the statistic says that 8 out of 10 businesses fail within 3 years. Nothing makes me more angry than when people lump someone into a statistic. It's not about the 80% like I was a roll of dice with an 8 out of 10 chances of failing. It's about the people who are involved in your business. It's about the process. It's about the product and service you're giving." End quote. Jason McArthur, founder and CEO, Farm Boy, Des Moines, Dennis Albaugh Award. Quote, what does it mean to be a small business owner? For me, it means not being afraid of making mistakes. It's better if you can find someone to help you find the answers. DMAC helps a lot of people find the answers. And even if you have to Google something or check YouTube, has there ever been a time when it's easier to learn something or figure something out? You have to have faith to work through challenges, and occasional prayers don't hurt either. Figure out when to listen to your head and when to listen to your gut. The most important thing for me as a small business is to have fun. You're going to have struggles, but focus on the big picture. You will have wins and you'll have losses, but it's a long season. End quote. Lane Messenbrink, President and CEO, Lane Trailer Manufacturing Company, Boone, Top Growth Company Award. Being a small business owner is one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done and one of the most stressful things. For example, delivering products to customers and seeing the reaction to the quality and design is very rewarding in my industry. Getting up in front of 300 people, 
brackets at this event and brackets and giving these comments is very stressful brackets laughter and brackets I love building our dealer network across the US and Canada and finally Lana Paul that's spelled P-O-L President G.I. Warehouse Pella Small Business of the Year quote we appreciate that DMAC acknowledges the sacrifices and accomplishments of small businesses it is a hard road I've been in business longer than anybody else here and to listen to what you are going through know that you can succeed and you can stand for longevity I want to thank my father with a sixth grade education he would teach me so much about life and businesses and it's the reason we've succeeded today he taught me the work ethic he taught me values he taught me integrity he taught me to treat employees as I wanted to be treated and he taught me to give businesses that we deal with the best value and the best services that we can and not to be greedy about it end quote and then finally here at the bottom is quote of the day if everything seems under control you're just not going fast enough attributed to Mario Andretti retired race car driver <laughs> and in case you missed it a brief look back at news from the past week on businessrecord.com skate park grant the state will provide a $500,000 grant for the Lauridson Skate Park on Des Moines' downtown riverfront. Water lawsuit. A Polk County judge rules that, in, rules that environmental groups' lawsuit pressuring the state to regulate farm runoff can proceed. ISU enrollment. Iowa State University's enrollment fell for the third straight year. Housing plan. Amid rezoning debate, Eric Burmeister calls on the Des Moines City Council to come up with a long-term housing plan. And finally, lakes suffer. The Iowa Environmental Council's analysis of state test data shows pollution problems at Iowa Lakes. Next, let's turn to a closer look. Meet a leader you should know. This week's topic, subject, is Ingrid Gronstall Anderson, Water Program Director, Iowa Environmental Council. And this article is by Perry Beeman. Ingrid Gronstall Anderson has worked on water issues for years, including as an environmental compliance worker at the University of Iowa. Much of her work involved making sure the university complied with major environmental regulations and laws. Over the years, she has also worked on projects that turn tall grasses into energy when she wasn't outdoors just trying to enjoy the environment she protects. Gronstall Anderson had considered working at the Iowa Environmental Council before predecessor Cindy Lane moved to Denver. Gronstall Anderson jumped at the chance to apply for the water program director position when it opened. 
The Council is a coalition representing major environmental organizations and individuals on water quality, energy, and other issues. The organization, formed in 1995, was the brainchild of a group of people that included banker Buzz Brenton. To answer your question, yes, Gronstall Anderson is related to the more famous Gronstalls. Former Iowa Banking Superintendent Tom Gronstall is her father, and former legislative leader Mike Gronstall is a cousin. We asked Gronstall Anderson about her new position, which she took in April. What appealed to you about the water program director job? Well, I think this is really a sort of dream job for me in a way. I've always been interested in environmental issues and environmental law. When I was an undergrad, I took classes at Iowa Lakeside Laboratory along West Okaboji Lake, and they were some of my favorite classes. My family's always had a place on the shore of Spirit Lake. I grew up swimming in the lake, playing in the lake, and boating. Water is probably my favorite medium. I knew when I went to law school that I wanted to work in environmental law and policy. Getting to do that in my home state was also really an attractive opportunity for me. What do you expect from this job? What will you be working on? I see my job as being in three areas. First is education and outreach. So getting out of Des Moines and going around to different areas and finding out how water quality affects different parts of the state is important. This summer, we made a pretty big effort to speak to people in the recreational lake communities like Clear Lake and Okaboji. We met with environmental leaders, business leaders, and tourism leaders. I spoke to Rotary Clubs about water quality and about what we do. We view ourselves as the voice of Iowans, and so a big part of that is to be able to go out and actually learn from Iowans and the message that we can take from them and actually amplify their voices across the state. This will be my first legislative session. We work with our coalition members and have a weekly water roundtable for members and supporters. We track legislation and we try to set legislative priorities. The third piece is strategic litigation when necessary, but our effort is to collaborate with people as much as possible. Part of our ability to negotiate is to say, well, if you don't do what the law requires, and if we can't resolve it here, we may have to resolve it in the court system. Do you have any general goals for your new job? Well, our main concern continues to be nutrient pollution and the various ways that becomes problematic in the state. So one area we're looking at is private well contamination. So back in April, we issued a report with Environmental Working Group looking at a private well testing across the state. And the first takeaway from that report is a lot of private wells aren't being tested. They're not regulated the same way like a public drinking water supply is tested. So there's a lot of people who don't know what's in those private wells. Of the wells that were tested, a significant portion came back as high in nitrate brackets, which has been associated with cancer and other illnesses, N brackets. 
In the lake areas, businesses have eight or ten weeks a year to make their money. If you have swimming advisories for two of those weeks, what does that do to the bottom line of those coffee shops and restaurants and resorts in those areas? You know, I think we get, get told the bottom line of agribusiness takes pres, precedence in the state. But I think there are other economic interests that need to be appropriately balanced when we talk about policies surrounding water quality. So there's other economic drivers related to nutrient pollution and waterways. And I think right now there's just an imbalance in how those are weighed. So we're looking at how do you actually balance all of Iowa's interests in these natural resources. The challenge with working with ag groups is they are so influential and so well-resourced in the state. What is their motive for coming to the table and talking about any sort of change from the status quo? It's incumbent upon us to say there are real problems in this state, and there are ways in which we all need to come together and find solutions to those problems. What we're trying to highlight is, hey, you have communities with small businesses who rely on these waterways, or you have people in your rural communities whose wells are contaminated. These are people within your communities with whom we should work to fix these issues. We should take the solutions to those problems seriously. Are these debates still being colored by the Des Moines Water Works federal lawsuit against drainage districts that was thrown out of court but caused some hard feelings? To a degree, but I think that the lawsuit served to bring this issue to the forefront of people's minds. People get nervous about litigation, and especially in a community-oriented state like Iowa, the concept of suing someone within your state can be sort of alarming to people. But I think that is something where, you know, they got to a point where we have to get some attention on this somehow. The courts can serve as a venue within which to resolve disputes. Will that lawsuit fallout hurt your efforts? I think it depends on who you're talking to. How are you wired? I am a good communicator. I'm good at building relationships. I think that I am fairly genuine. I don't play games. I try not to be disingenuous with the things I say. I try to have a reputation for being on the level with people. When I work with them, I like to not take myself too terribly seriously because I'm just a goof. I thought the first day of your law school would have taken your humor away. <laughs> My lawyer friends are some of the funniest people I know, but it's a kind of dark humor. What do you like to do in your spare time? I like to get outside as much as possible. I do a lot of cycle racing on the roads and cyclocross on trails. I like to read a little bit of everything. And then, per usual, there is a sidebar, at a glance. On Ms. Gronstall, it says, age 36, hometown Carol. Family, husband, Ben. Education, bachelor's degree, psychology, ba biology minor, University of Iowa. Law degree, University of Iowa. Activities, board member, Emma Goldman Clinic in Iowa City, 
Iowa Bicycling Racing Association, Iowa City Cycling Club. And the contact information is Gronstall at iowaenvironment.org. And now I'll spell that. It's all, all small letters. Uh, Gronstall, G-R-O-N-S-T-A-L. And then the at sign, I A. E-N-V-I-R-O-N-M-E-N-T dot O-R-G. Gronstall at IAEnvironment.org. Now let's turn to the opinion section uh, before we get to the break. And the first one is Elbert Files by Dave Elbert, business record columnist. Exploring on two wheels. Central Iowa's high trestle trail reminded me recently how enjoyable biking can be. Over the years, I've spent a fair amount of my time on my 1973 Schwinn Supersport bicycle, although not so much in recent years. I was 26 when I bought the bike, a top-of-the-line 10-speed with toe clips that I never used, and a hard leather saddle that's still comfortable 46 years later. I was living in Davenport, and I used it to go places I never visited by car. One favorite was Oakdale Cemetery, where legendary jazz musician Bix Beiderbeck is buried, along with Civil War generals and other luminaries, including department store wizard Charles J. Von Maurer and the city-founding Bettendorf brothers, Joseph and William. Sylvan Island was another destination. It's a small outcrop on the backside of Arsenal Island. It has a small hydro plant and a single-lane bridge connection with Moline, Illinois. The plant was built in 1898 and rebuilt in 1941. Nearby was the largely abandoned site of an 1871 plant that supplied mechanical power from the Mississippi River to nearby factories years before the invention of the light bulb. After I began dating my wife in 1974, I bought her a bike that was orange in color like mine, but with a softer seat. When we married and moved to Des Moines, we bought a home two and a half miles west of downtown, and I began riding to a work to avoid parking fees. Most days, the bike was faster than the bus because the ride was downhill and the bus had to stop for passengers. Later, I became a master of free parking, finding temporary lots where construction workers parked when they were building 801 Grand and other downtown buildings during the 1980s and 90s. But even with free parking, it was still faster to bike than it was to drive and walk four or five blocks from my car to a desk on the fourth floor of the Register and Tribune building at 715 Locust Street. When our daughter and son were young, I introduced them to biking by taking them with me 
sometimes in a baby seat perched above my rear tire, and sometimes in a backpack. A few times I rode with both babies on board. Nobody had helmets back then, so it wasn't the safest way to travel with children. Even with helmets today, I wouldn't recommend it. We were naive and fortunate because we never had a mishap. Daughter Holly particularly loved riding with me and is today an inveterate biker. Son Craig, who lives in New York City, not so much, which is just as well given the dangers of riding and traffic there. I was never a ragbri rider. I don't enjoy riding in large groups. I did, however, crew for ragbri friends for many years just so I could play golf at different courses across the con- uh, Iowa. I thought that after I retired from the register in 2012, I'd do more riding, but I haven't. Not until a recent weekend when Holly and her wife, Dawn, invited Mom and Dad to ride with them on the high trestle trail between Madrid and Woodward. Bringing up the rear on a cool, overcast Sunday brought back memories of my Davenport rides. The trestle bridge is listed by the BBC as one of the world's eight amazing footbridges, and with good cause. The panoramic view from the half-mile-long, 13-story tall structure is breathtaking, and the on-site history and artwork are fascinating. There are other fun things to do along the route, too, including watering holes like Whistlin' Donkey and Woodward, where we had a good lunch and excellent Bloody Marys. And the other column on the opinion page is by Drew McClellan, as always, under Marketing. Marketing equals transparency? Question mark. If you live in the agency world like I do, the word transparency gets batted around quite a bit. A few years ago, some of the big international agencies were caught with their hand in the media cookie jar. They were taking additional compensation from media outlets on top of the commission they were already earning. As a result, many of the largest brands in the world started demanding more transparency around billing and media buying from their agencies. That new, heightened sensibility didn't affect smaller agencies because they'd always been better about disclosing any fees, markups, or commissions, and the dollars they dealt with weren't big enough to create that sort of underhanded practice. But today, the demand for transparency is coming from a very different place, the consumers. Thanks to social media, internet access, and the ready availability of just about anything on the web, brands and brand promises are being scrutinized much more closely, and as a result held to new standards that many companies aren't equipped to deal with. We now live in a world where consumers do not only expect brands to do as they say and actually honor their promises and values, but they are also quick to call them out when they don't. A recent example of this happened to Unilever. They're the parent brand of Dove products. Dove has positioned itself as an advocate for women. 
Their, quote, discover real beauty, end quote, campaign was applauded worldwide for recognizing that the media's idealized definition of beauty is unrealistic. Men and women declared their love for Dove and changed their buying habits based on that campaign's message. Unilever is also the parent brand for the Axe brand, of men's grooming products, which seem to appeal mostly to 14-year-old boys. They recently launched a series of TV spots that depicted a young man who had just liberally doused himself with Axe body spray walking down the street. As he walked, scantily clad young women were knocking each other down to get to him. The very company that celebrated women of all shapes and sizes and criticized the world's objectified view of women had just objectified women. When you look at the Dove and Axe campaign side by side, you can argue that the audiences are very different and the advertising messaging was on target for each audience. In the good old days, that probably would have flown. No one would have held the parent company to a single standard. But today it did not fly. Today it resulted in such a public outcry by both the media and on social media that Unilever had to pull the Axe ad campaign. Here are some takeaways for all of us from that situation. Consumers want to buy from brands who align with their values, causes, and concerns. It used to be that your mission, vision, and values were for internal purposes. But your buyers want to know what you stand for and what matters to you as much as your employees do. And like your employees, they expect it to be more than lip service. It takes a long time to earn their loyalty and one misstep to lose it. As a society, we are quicker to move to an extreme reaction than ever before. Social media fuels that outrage and gives the offended person an outlet for expressing it. Once the mob mentality kicks in, it's easy to lose a very loyal customer or fan. Being held to the standard of living your core values and doing what you say you're going to do is not a bad thing. In next week's column, we'll talk about how to be proactive and protective of your brand and its promise. You're listening to this week's edition of The Business Record. Our thanks to the folks at Business Publications for providing a copy of The Business Record to ISIS so that we can read it for you. If you have any comments on this or any other ISIS program, give us a call at 243-6833. To repeat, that's 243-6833. Now back to the business record. Our cover story this week is entitled Recharged. Iowa Energy Center Begins New Era at IEDA. And it's by Perry Beeman. The Iowa Energy Center decided in July to help Iowa State University researchers look into ways to avoid peak power problems at Iowa poultry facilities. 
A private firm will be looking into how ratepayers in small communities without sewer service would benefit from getting hooked to a system. Another grant will help ISU look at was to build carbon in soils. Yeah, that's right. Another grant will help ISU look at was to build carbon in soils while sweeping the element from the atmosphere where it drives climate change. The main point, the Iowa Energy Center is up and running. It is not, as some thought after a dust-up involving its operations under Iowa State University's umbrella, kaput. The scaled-back and refined center now is part of the Iowa Economic Development Authority. The board chairman is Tim Whipple, general general counsel for the Iowa Association of Municipal Utilities. There's been a lot of confusion, Whipple said in an interview. Some people thought the center was repealed or shut down. We're open and ready for business. It's taken a while to get there because some of the things that we needed to do were legal in nature. We had to transfer all the records and sort through the information we got from Iowa State about their programs and how they were constructed, Whipple said. We had to create new infrastructure for the programs as we moved over to state government. Not only did we have to go through rulemaking for the programs, we thought we would take really engage stakeholders and design them from the ground up. Uh, That's correct. Not only did we have to go through rulemaking for the programs, we thought we would take really engage stakeholders and design them from the ground up. Quote, we still have programs. We have an alternative energy revolving loan program that we migrated funds over from Iowa State. For that is going to operate pretty closely to how Iowa State operated it. The requirements for that are laid down in the Iowa Code. We still wanted to run a grant program, but we wanted to take a fresh look at how to do those grants. So we did two sets of administrative rules, one to operate the revolving loan program and one to operate the grants, he added. The loans are no interest financing as set by state law, but there were changes. Quote, we've changed some of the terms, Whipple said. Some of the loans were long-term loans, and we wanted the money to not be tied up for so long. For example, everyone wants a 0% loan for 20 years if they can get it, right? We're now going to start looking at your payback period. If the project is going to pay for itself in 7 or 10 years, then that's when we want our funds repaid too. That way, Whipple said, less of the money is obligated at one time and will be available for others. Quote, these are for research projects into renewable energy. Iowa State always did that, he said. A lot of the recipients were departments at Iowa State. The center was housed at Iowa State, and they would make grants. A number of them were to the renewable fuels research area, things like that. 
What we're now going to be doing is retooling these programs so that they're focused on the seven key areas of the state's energy plan. We're going to be looking at things like rural and underserved areas. We're going to be looking at workforce. We're going to be looking at grid resiliency. And there's, there's a handful of others, end quote. That is part of an overall shift at the center. Quote, we've got a new mission for the center, which is to focus on those seven key focus areas. And then we wanted to redesign both the grant and loan programs so that the projects that they funded, fund are clearly advancing the goals of the energy plan. That is a change in Whipple's view, quote, I would characterize some of what the Energy Center had done in its earlier days as a little bit of hodgepodge. You know, things funded here and there in ad hoc fashion. It's nice to have a plan and carry it through. The loan program tends to focus on bigger projects like solar, wind, biomass, big figure financing projects, Whipple said. The grant programs will continue to be focused on research projects in the area of energy, which is more than appropriate. We still need that kind of research, end quote. The 2018 annual report showed $7 million in loans and loans receivable of $10 million. The 23 active grants added up to $2.6 million. All but three of the grants end at the end of this year. The others end in 2020 or 2021. One thing that hasn't changed, the board's makeup. There were criticisms under the previous version that utilities had too much of a say, but the center is established and set up under state law. The 13 members of the volunteer board include Debbie Durham, director of IEDA and the Iowa Finance Authority, as well as representatives of ISU, the Iowa Department of Transportation, Central College, the Iowa Utilities Board, the University of Northern Iowa, the University of Iowa, the Iowa Association of Municipal Utilities, Iowa Lakes Community College, Iowa Lakes Electric Cooperative, the Iowa Utility Association, and the Iowa Office of Consumer Advocate. Whipple is hoping that the board will make sure all the state universities get a chance at aid. Quote, we need to move the money around and make sure that projects at UNI and Iowa are funded at a comparable level to projects at Iowa State. There is good working there is good work going on at all three of our regents' universities that we want to support, end quote. The staff of the Iowa Energy Office supports the work of the Energy Center. Brian Selinger is the lead staffer at that part of IEDA. The center runs off a one-tenth of one percent of the gross revenues of Iowa gas and electric utilities. Whipple said that the state's energy plan 
will inform much of what happens in coming months. Quote, it lays out what we need to do in regards to grid resiliency and making sure we have enough people in energy careers, end quote. Overall, the transition to IEDA has brought new excitement at the Energy Center, he added. Quote, I think there really is a lot of excitement to begin this project anew and to reintroduce it to the business community and to reintroduce it to the academic community to put economic developments, marketing expertise behind it, to put the IEDA administrative and legal and policy experience all behind it. It's going to work well, and I think it was unfortunate that people's motives were questioned, end quote, Whipple said. Some, including the nonprofit Iowa Environmental Council, questioned whether the move to IEDA would make the energy center a more political operation. Carrie Johansson, the council's energy program director, said her organization hasn't had much contact with the energy center since it moved to IEDA. We certainly had concerns about the center moving from the relative independence of Iowa State University into an executive branch agency potentially more influenced by the politics of the moment, end quote, Johansson said. Quote, to date, we have not flagged any major issues with the transition. I do think that IEDA did an admirable job of getting programs up and running quickly after, after the legislature moved the center in 2017. My biggest concern now is with the funding sunset date of July 1, 2022, that the legislature also put in place. It is clear that the importance of energy for our economy and environment will only become more important, not less, in the coming decades, and research and development of new energy technologies will be critical to the transition away from fossil fuels." End quote. Legislators passed a bill supported by utilities that phases out the funding for the grant programs over a few years, but the revolving loans will continue, Whipple said. There may be discussion of alternative funding for grants, he added. The loans and the center will continue. And here's a sidebar. The Iowa Energy Plan that informs the work of the Iowa Energy Center laid out these seven areas of emphasis. Technology-based research and development. Workforce development. Support for rural and underserved areas. Biomass. Natural gas expansion in underserved areas. Electric grid modernization. Alternative fuel vehicles. Those areas are under each of four areas at the heart of the plan. Those are economic development and energy careers, energy efficiency and conservation, 
Iowa's energy resources, transportation, and infrastructure. And under real estate and development, uh, Kathy Bolton has an article exclusive, the unique, moving, colorful art planned for new parking garage. Subtitled, The Principles Involved with Creating the Artwork for the New Downtown Parking Garage Explain the Genesis of the Piece, Its Design, and Installation. Imagine imagine circling through a multi-story parking garage, becoming frazzled as you search for somewhere to park. Now imagine that experience driving through slowly rotating patchworks of color, causing you to feel as if you're floating on a rainbow. Finding a parking space becomes a much more enjoyable experience. Quote, the movement of the color, it is like music, end quote, internationally known artist and Des Moines resident Yorame Mavorach said, it is something you feel, a visual compos- composition of colors, end quote. Mavorach, known as Oyoram in art circles, is working with local developer Justin Mandelbaum to create a unique piece of moving art that will cover the west side of a parking garage under construction at 5th Avenue and Walnut Street in downtown Des Moines. Called the Flying Fifth, the 20,400-square-foot space art facade, about a third of the size of a football field, will be covered with 435 two-bladed windmills that rotate slowly with the wind. The artwork will also include 870 one-foot square LED panels located in the center of each windmill and in between each windmill that will serve as a digital canvas for Oyoram's radiating visuals. Quote, the west side of the garage, a massive canvas, presented an opportunity to do something that can be iconic for the city for decades to come, Mandelbaum told the business record. Our vision is to have an art facade that's dynamic, that moves with the wind and excites both pedestrians and users of the garage. One of our goals is to help Des Moines become a nationally recognized city for the arts. We think Yorame is the perfect headliner for this because he's already an internationally recognized artist and because the canvas that we have for him will be of a scale that should garner national attention, said Mandelbaum. Mandelbaum always envisioned his $200 million project, the fifth, a 40-story tower that includes 209 luxury apartments and a 21C museum hotel, a dine-in movie theater, retail space, and a public parking garage to include unique artwork that would turn the heads of passers-by and create 
something groundbreaking. But Mandelbaum didn't have anyone in mind to create the artwork until he met Mivorak, a Paris-based artist who moved to Des Moines after marrying a Grinnell College professor. Mivorak whose expertise ranges from producing and directing short films to creating video artwork for boutiques and runways, created Mental Banquet, Painting with Lights, which was displayed on the facade of the World Food Prize Hall of Laureates in fall 2018. The video light show, choreographed to music, garnered wide-ranging accolades. Mandelbaum had heard about the studio Mevorach built at the Sherman Hill home he shares with Katja Giebel Mevorach. He heard of Mevorach's internationally renowned reputation and of the video artwork he created for boutiques operated by Dior, Louis Vuitton, and others. The two met over lunch at Mavorach's home. Mandelbaum explained the project and the different elements of art it will include, such as incorporating murals in the parking garages, elevator lobbies, and partnering with 21C Museum Hotels, which displays contemporary art throughout its properties and will occupy 13 floors of the tower. Mavorak immediately latched on to what Mandelbaum was trying to accomplish. Quote, he said, I get it. You want people to come downtown to park in the garage, said Mandelbaum, imitating uh, Mavorak's French-Israeli accent. You want the experience for these people to be the garage itself, end quote. This guy totally gets it, Mandelbaum says. He knows what we're looking for. The two walked the site of the parking garage and talked over ideas. Mandelbaum shared the work of other artists who have transformed parking spaces into pieces of art. One artist, he told Mivorak, uh, designed a massive screen featuring 250,000 perforated aluminum panels mounted on pivots so that they could move in the wind. The cascading panels created an illusion of fast-moving clouds. I said, let's do better than this, end quote, Mandelbaum said. How to attach windmills to a parking garage. As Mavorak's ideas began to emerge in a form that both he and Mandelbaum could visualize and verbalize, they reached out to Tim Hickman, principal at Substance Architecture, a Des Moines firm that had worked with Mavorach on his studio. Hickman also is president of the board of directors for the Greater Des Moines Public Arts Foundation, which worked with the artist on the video art displayed on the World Food Prize building. Substance Architecture is also involved with the parking garage project. Hickman recalled Mandelbaum talking about Mivarach's artwork during a meeting above about the parking garage. I said, we've worked with Yorami. We love working with Yorami, Hickman said. 
Uh, about a month later, Mandelbaum reached out to Hickman. Quote, there's a lot of logistical elements to Yorame's project, gravity for one, and a lot of technical things to sort out, Hickman said. Hickman needed to figure out how to attach a six and one half foot wide, two-bladed windmills to the side of the garage. What he settled on was a network of steel supports that will crisscross the garage. The windmill's blades will be slightly angled to catch the wind and will be positioned on the steel pipes as well the 12-inch square LED panels. The weather will determine which windmill's speed and the speed of their rotation. It will be random, Mavarach said. We cannot anticipate what will happen, but what we can anticipate is that it will be random, and that is good for us. Even if it's not rotating, it will be colorful and beautiful. The blades will move about 30 revolutions per minute, Hickman said. Light from the sun will penetrate through the translucent blades, which also will have color in them. Other light will come from the nearby 900 LED panels that will be mounted on the side of the garage. A computer program will operate the panels that will change colors and project varying images such as waterfalls or snowfall. Sometimes all of the LED panels may be the same color, Hickman said, but then it can change. It will be constantly changing and transforming, and that's what will make it all very interesting. Hickman said colored lights will fill the parking garage, and because the blades will be turning, the light will look as if it's moving. You'll get a different experience inside the ramp from outside. You'll get a different experience during the daytime from nighttime, Hickman said. It will be constantly changing, and that is part of what makes it exciting. Next step, appearing before city board design. A model of the artwork hasn't yet been made, making it difficult for Mandelbaum, Mavarak, and Hickman to explain what is planned for the parking garage to the city's decision makers. In October, Mandelbaum will explain the art project to the Urban Design Review Board, the first public discussion of Mavorak's vision. Typically, it's the board's job to judge, do we like the architecture or not, Hickman said. This is another layer because the architecture has some artwork in front of it, which is a little bit different kind of task than they are normally given. I think it'll be interesting to see how that conversation goes. Construction of the 11-story, 751-stall parking garage is expected to be completed in August. The goal is to have the artwork completed then as well, Mandelbaum said. Hickman said a working model of the art will be made this fall and likely placed on a downtown structure to see how it works. Once any bugs are worked out, the steel supports and blades will be manufactured. He expects that once all the pieces are in hand, it will take about a month to install on the side of the garage.
Hickman said he's excited to see the final version of Mavorak's artwork. Quote, there are all kinds of artworks that have been done on the side of parking garages and a couple that are pretty dynamic and move a bit, he said. Nothing I'm, I've seen, though, moves and incorporates a screen or light element. This is the kind of thing that is consistent for Des Moines, Hickman said. In the last 10 years, we've done a lot of things that set Des Moines apart. This will be another thing. End quote. You've been listening to the business record on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. I'm your reader, Bob Powers. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS. Mm-hmm.